This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Like the kōkako, the saddleback, or tieke, belongs to the New Zealand wattlebird family. A family to which the huia belonged and which has been established in this country since ancient times, much longer than most of our other birds. The saddleback takes its name from the bright reddish saddle on its back, which according to legend is the mark of Maui's hand. Sadly, this attractive bird has disappeared from the main islands and exists only on a few offshore islands, carefully chosen locations for resettlement away from predators, which appears to have saved the tieke from total extinction. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good day, friends. Welcome to Community or Chaos. Today we have Kevin Clements talking about New Zealand foreign policy and Ukraine and peace. Kevin Clements is the former director and foundation of the Chair of Peace and Conflict Studies, New Zealand National Center for Peace and Conflict Studies at the University of Otago. And he's a Quaker and he's also Secretary General of the International Peace Research Association. And he's uh, one of the leaders of a peace foundation in Japan. Is that fairly accurate? Yeah, it is. It's the Toda Peace Institute in Japan. And so we do a lot of research and practice on conflict and, um, and some of the big issues around climate change, arms control and disarmament, um, uh, building stable peace in Northeast Asia and so forth. So that's, that's occupying most of my time at the moment. Anyway, lovely to be with you, Marvin. Well, friends, you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and going to community or chaos. Uh, Kevin, what did you did you think that Putin was actually going to invade Ukraine? And what were your first thoughts and feelings when you heard he had actually invaded Ukraine? Well, initially, I thought it was um, a bit of um, military posturing to increase his bargaining power with the Ukrainian government. Um, but then when I saw all the lines of tanks and so forth um, moving close to the border, it began to get a little bit more ominous. Um, and <clears throat> at that point, I thought, well, anything can happen like everybody else. You know, We were hoping against hope that uh, it was indeed just a military exercise, um, but then as the uh, as the columns got closer and closer to the Ukrainian border, I, I really felt we were on the verge of war, and uh, uh, and and we were right. I mean, I like everybody else, so I was completely taken aback by it because um, uh, it looked uh, like a completely irrational conflict, uh, and had no idea why Putin was was authorizing it. Um, uh, given that you know, earlier attempts to annex the Donbass and Crimea and so forth had actually ended up in sta- military stalemates, and uh, you should have known that. Okay, what were the historical circumstances before the invasion of, U- of the Ukraine, which made the relationship between Russia, Ukraine, and NATO difficult? Well, I think we've really got to go back to the breakup of the former Soviet Union. Um, uh, President Gorbachev uh, presided over Perestroika and, and, and the eventual breakup of what was in the Soviet Union, which meant all of the different states that had been part of it, um, like Latvia, Lithuania, um, Ukraine, Belarus, um, Kazakhstan, all the stands and so forth. I mean, they all became independent. And uh, that always generated a bit of conflict and tension between Moscow and the newly independent states. Um, But it became particularly aggravating with Ukraine. As you know, uh, um, 
Russia used to base its, some of its nuclear weapons on Ukraine. Uh, and uh, they did a big deal there um, where the Ukrainians gave up um, hosting those weapons in return for security guarantees that um, Russia would not Russia would respect, respect its independence and the West would respect its independence. <clears throat> and attached to that was some other guarantees that the West gave in relation to um, uh, Ukraine and Belarus in particular um, uh, not joining NATO and and NATO in turn uh, not expanding into these former Soviet territories. So there's a long historical um, sequence of events there that, that uh, you know, provided the background to it. Um, <clears throat> but I think some of the specifics that uh, really um, did aggravate. Um, so the, the immediate aggravating um, issues were um, Ukraine's announced intention to um, uh, join the European Union. And that, that had been going back to 2014 when um, Yanukovych was in power. Uh, and then um, on top of that, um, Ukraine's desire to become more fully a part of the West by joining NATO, um, that was an aggravation. And thirdly, uh, there was a sort of a sense um, that the whole Donbass region and so forth had not been adequately resolved to Putin's satisfaction. So all of those three issues became triggers for, you know, the military exercise turning into an actual war. Now, what was the relationship between NATO and Russia? And did Russia have different expectations in NATO than what actually happened? Well, you know, I think that... Um, what actually happened was that... Um, I'm talking about not just Ukraine, of course. No, 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 not at all. Well, when the Soviet Union split up, Gorbachev was very keen to make sure that there were security guarantees in place between NATO and all of the different parts of the former Soviet Union. Uh, and um, George Kennan and others, who used to be war hawks, and in fact, he was responsible for the old Cold War, said this is a unique opportunity uh, for Europe to try and establish peaceful relationships with Ukraine uh, and, and, and Russia and so forth. Uh, and there, were, there was a lot of discussion around, um, even discussion around NATO, uh, uh, Russia joining NATO, um, uh, which was roundly rebuffed um, uh, by NATO, by NATO um, when Gorbachev and Yeltsin left and certainly when uh, Putin took over. Um, so there had been some initial enthusiasm for developing a cooperative security arrangement between NATO and Russia. And indeed, there was a sort of a, 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 an observer status between NATO and Russia so that um, uh, confidence could be built. Uh, and the Organization on Security and Cooperation in Europe uh, also was determined that, you know, there not be a return to that old Cold War conflict. Um, so there was an opportunity <coughs> in the 1990s and early 2000s for the West to really develop, uh, you know, a, a security arrangement with Russia that would be non-threatening and would allay their concerns about potential invasion from recalcitrant border states. Um, unfortunately, that didn't happen. And Latvia and Lithuania and Romania and Poland and others applied to join NATO, and NATO expanded eastwards, um, much to the consternation of Russia. That was under Clinton, wasn't it? That was under Clinton, yeah. I think and, was, uh, Clinton, did, Clinton's biggest foreign policy mistakes. I did think. Johnson and Russia have reason to believe that the United States had some understanding that they wouldn't expand NATO all around Russia? Yes, that was, that was certainly the understanding from... Um, Gorbachev and Yeltsin's discussion. Gorbachev, Reagan had initial discussions about it, then Yeltsin and Clinton. Um, but um, the uh, the pressure built up far too much for the Clinton administration um, because at the end of the Cold War, there was great pressure for NATO to disband, if you remember all those conversations. Um, 
and that didn't happen. And so um, Clinton had to develop some justification for NATO's continuation. And one of the justifications was to provide security guarantees to former Soviet, former Soviet Union. Um, Did the experts on the Soviet Union and Russia advise the expansion of NATO? Kennan, Kennan and uh, also the former the last the former ambassador of the Soviet Union. Yeah, Matt Lepre. was there advice. There was there was a lot of um, encouragement of uh, not not uh, pushing eastwards. In fact, these people that had run the Cold War. Yeah, advised, they, they, advised uh, the United States not to expand NATO around Russia, right. not to entrap Russia. And they were looking forward to a, to a way in which they could recalibrate the relationship so that the old Cold War confrontation was replaced by something that was a lot more cooperative. But what happened was that as all of these different states were added into the NATO fold, Uh, it looked more and more to Putin um, uh, and uh, and his military advisors that Russia was again being contained. And it's just, Putin wouldn't be the only person in Russia that had that opinion, would he? No, not at all. I mean, I think that... Um, it, it, we talk about Putin all the time, and he is a, an authoritarian, hierarchical uh, leader, but he's not... His opinion wouldn't be that different from other people's opinion in the hierarchy. No, not at all. I mean, all sorts of advisors said that this was a big mistake for NATO to expand and take over former um, um, Russian, former republics who were in part of the Warsaw Pact and so forth. Can um, you tell us about the Minsk Agreement? Yeah, the Minsk Agreement was an attempt to try and clarify some of the irritations that were affecting um, uh, Russian-Ukrainian relationships. Um, and it flowed out of um, an initiative by the OSCE. There were two Minsk agreements, um, one in 2014 and one in 2015. Uh, and it was, it was trying to um, um, deal with the conflict that took place between Ukraine and Russia over the Donbass region. Um, and so... Uh, <clears throat> There's language difficulties, isn't there? There were language difficulties. There were the, both of those, all of those regions are predominantly Russian-speaking majorities. So Russia felt that um, it had a, a, you know, a, a right to annex those um, uh, provinces um, and give them um, Russian citizenship and Russian protection. And they were trying to work out how to do this. So the Minsk agreements were aimed at looking at um, some measures of interim self-government for Donetsk and Lukansk, um, to exchange hostages and prisoners, to provide humanitarian assistance, um, for Ukraine to restore control of its state borders, to withdraw foreign armed formations and so forth. And to so look they're at talking about some form of local autonomy, not independence, but local autonomy? It was local autonomy, and it was, it was constitutional reform in Ukraine, including decentralization, Uh, of the Donetsk and Luhansk region. And the right of uh, Russian speakers to use Russian language? Yes. Because they lost that right for a while, didn't they? That's right. That's right. And, and Ukraine was very paranoid about um, Russia doing what it did in Abkhazia and South Ossetia and Georgia, which was for the big, large Russian-speaking populations. They basically um, annexed those um, uh, countries by stealth, um, by simply... Uh, providing all the citizens in those places with Russian passports and then saying we have an we have an international obligation to provide security for our citizens. And so South Ossetia and and, um, uh, and uh, Abkhazia were annexed. Um, and that uh, was something that was really, really worried Ukraine, that um, Russia would basically try and annex uh, Ukraine again with the same sort of procedures. Um, uh, appealing to Russian speakers, you know, to, to rejoin Mother Russia um, and to make sure there was a Russia-leaning government in Ukraine. Okay. Can you tell us about the overthrow of President Yavanovich from, uh, in, in 2014? 
Yeah, he came, he came to power in 2010 um, and uh, was, uh, was, was very much Putin's man. Um, he, uh, he was there basically to do Putin's bidding in relation to uh, Ukraine's desire to do a trade deal with the European Union um, and to uh, move westwards rather than eastwards. This, and this drove Putin crazy. Um, and so um, Putin backed Yankovic um, uh, in, um, in 2010, but there were huge demonstrations against him, some violent and some nonviolent, uh, and rumors that uh, America had been involved in, uh, in the Yanukovych coup. Um, so he, uh, um, he, he, was, he was ousted and, and fled to uh, Kiev to Kharkiv and then, and then uh, exiled himself to Russia. Okay. Can you describe the Putin's invasion of Ukraine and how would you describe it? Would you describe it? was basically while Putin had grievances, it was basically totally unjustified, wasn't it? And it was a war turned it into was, a it, war. It crime. was a totally unjustified uh, invasion. Would uh, it be a war crime under UN procedure? Uh, yeah, it definitely. It, it, it constitutes an international act of aggression under international law and again, and, and all Security Council principles and of the UN Charter. So there's no doubt at all this was a, a clear and blatant act of aggression across national borders. And this is something which we haven't seen for a very long time. I and mean, we've seen plenty of wars, um, but we haven't seen a war which was such a blatant um, example of transnational or international uh, act of aggression between one nation and another. And he's attacked cities wholeheartedly, wholesale, including civilians. Well, yeah, so there's no effort on his part to separate military from civilian um, from civilians there, which again is uh, is a is a war crime. Uh, and there's absolutely no justification whatsoever, irrespective of his political objectives, We're basically leveling um, you know, infrastructure in the Donbass region, uh, in Mariupol. Um, and, um, and, and in Odessa. I mean, he's just uh, conducted a, a, a war of absolute aggression and, and destruction there. It's sort of four horsemen of the apocalypse stuff. And how would you, how do we talk about this? What well, do you think of when people talk about the Russians call the Ukrainians Nazis, and uh, the, the West call uh, Putin a madman that can't be negotiated with, has no rationality, acting uh, alone. Yeah, I mean... Is this a way to negotiate, the way... No, 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 not at all. I, um, in the first place... It, there is some doubt about who actually uh, committed an act of aggression, first of all, um, because there was a continued fighting and continued American support for Ukraine to keep fighting in the Donbass. Um, but uh, Putin, Putin has been very careful all along not to call it a war, but to call it a special operation. Uh, and even for a special operation, given that he, he committed a large chunk of the Russian army to it, he had to have some justifications for it. So his justifications were all a bit lame. One, the first was to protect the neutrality of Ukraine, which could have, could have been negotiated. I mean, the, um, the Minsk agreement was, uh, was the basis for uh, Macron and other European leaders trying to maintain negotiations around um, the independence of Ukraine and its neutrality. Um, and that remains, uh, you know, that remains an eminently negotiable um, position. But at the same time, he thought he would capitalize on um, Russians' fear of fascism and memories of the Second World War by declaring that the Azov Battalion um, and a lot of the other Ukrainian militia that were fighting in the Donbass were actually Nazis. Now, the problem with that is that, indeed, um, if you look at their um, manifestos and policies, I mean, the Azov Battalion, for example, uh, is clearly a fascist. Uh, it's anti-Semitic. Um, it's um, 
it's a very, very pro-Ukrainian nationalist. Um, it um, uh, it uh, wants to push back um, uh, Slavs to Russia and um, uh, and so there's there's a sense in which um, there is some justification for denazification of the Azov Battalion, which was holed up in Mariupol and which now is in Russian hands. Uh, and if if you can get uh, you can get some sense of how Russia feels about that by looking at what's been happening in the Russian Duma, where they think that um, instead of treating these um, uh, soldiers as prisoners of war, uh, they should be um, subject to trial for being fascists um, and the death penalty applied. Um, so they're breaking the Geneva Convention as well. But there is some, there is some um, vague justification for the, the denazification um, policy, but it's just, it, it just beggars belief to, to think that there is any justification for the invasion that's taken place. How would you talk about well, um, America's position, uh, particularly with their history regime change and um, Biden's miss, um, Biden talks about needing to get rid of Putin. Putin shouldn't be in power. And right. Russia should be, and Russia's place in the world should be minimized. Well, as I, as I said, um, uh, in, the, in the first place, um, Clinton and subsequent U.S. administrations supported the expansion of NATO. And indeed, uh, as we're discovering now, I mean, attempts to turn neutral nations into allies. Um, that, that really, in, in, I mean, in, in senses the, the, the Kremlin. Um, uh, and um, uh, isn't, uh, you know, is something which, you know, um, the West should really be sensitive to and acknowledge um, their neutrality. Um, but uh, the, the American and NATO response to the invasion, I mean, can be justified because it is an unwarranted war of aggression. Um, uh, I mean, the war is being fought in Ukrainian territory, the civilians are taking a huge hit. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. absolutely. But the, um, uh, you know, so, so the, the invasion initially started, well, we've got to go back a little bit. Um, even under Trump, um, America was supplying arms and weapons to Ukraine in order to enhance their ability to fight the war on the Donbass. So they've been piling in um, military equipment for some time and actually been involved in training of Ukrainian troops. Uh, after the war took place, the um, uh, amount of military hardware going in has just been exponentially um, uh, uh, increased. Um, so that now Ukraine is the single biggest beneficiary of US military aid anywhere in the world, including Israel. Um, so billions of dollars are going into um, defending the Ukrainian war machine. And thirdly, um, the Secretary of Defense in the um, U.S. gave the game away when he was in Kiev and said the whole point of this um, military response to the invasion wasn't just to defend Amer um, Ukraine's independence, but was basically aimed at weakening Russia uh, so that Russia would never, ever again be able to mount such attacks anywhere in the world. So what we have here now then is um, are essentially two wars going on. The first war is, you know, in a sense, could be claimed as legitimate, the legitimate right of Ukraine to self-defense against an invasion from a foreign power. The second war, which is going on, some call it a proxy war, others call it just a second war, is a conflict between Russia and the United States about who's going to be top dog, who's going to have global hegemony uh, in the next um, in the world in the world order of the 21st century. So America sees this as a test of their global leadership capacity, and they're pouring in more and more weapons uh, and wanting to make sure that. This, is, this not only blunts Putin's nose militarily, but is a knockout punch for him 
So is Isn't it this a, sh a bit of a shame that America sees its leadership only through military? Oh, it's absolutely appalling. Eh? You know, and, and I mean, even China, while they've done appalling things, sees their leadership as both economic and military, and yeah. basically at this point more economic than military. Yeah, they, no, they, no. Both, they both have the same goals of being this the uh, super nation. But yeah, that, that, yeah that's right. And, and, um, and so, what what will happen is that it, is it is that Russia will depend more and more on its nuclear weapons. And the fact that um, Putin was willing to cross the nuclear taboo and contemplate the use of tactical nuclear weapons, I mean, in a sense, is is very very dangerous in terms of you know big power geopolitics. But you're right. I mean. Um, China prefers to utilize economic leverage to get its way. Um, and America at the moment still hasn't learned from the wars in Iraq and Syria and elsewhere and Libya and Afghanistan. But basically, it doesn't have, it has huge military capacity, but it doesn't have um, the capability of winning wars when they're up against determined um, defenders. And so um, to be, keep on perpetuating military, Military coercion as the main um, avenue for maintaining top dog positions uh, is counterproductive for the U.S. and the rest of the world. I think at this point we could have a, a piece of music, and then we'll come back shortly. Without a spark, where cities. 
Talking with Professor Kevin Clements, the former director and, and foundation chair of the Peace and Conflict Studies at uh, New Zealand National Center for Peace and Conflict, and also the uh, director of the Todi Peace Institute in Japan about the con the war in Iraq and Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine. Sorry, the war in Ukraine. Ma, I'm showing my age. Definitely the war in Ukraine. George, you're and in good company there, Marvin, because George Bush made the same mistake. And <laughs> <laughs> he said it was a major disaster to kind of go uh, invade Iraq, which, which is absolutely anyway, true. The, um, so the war in Ukraine, it's really the Ukrainians that suffered. How have the Russian speakers uh, reacted to the invasion? Well, it's, had it's different it, stories it, about that. Yes, I mean it, it's. Um, they haven't ru rushed around with flowers and laurels. I understand. No, no. Ukraine, Ukraine is definitely bearing the brunt of the invasion, and uh, and all you know. So. Has it unified Ukraine to some extent? Sorry? Has it unified Ukraine to some extent? Oh, I think, I think it's hugely unified Ukraine. Ukraine, Ukraine as we, we mentioned before, was had a whole variety of different political divisions, ethnic divisions, and so forth. And Zelensky and, and Putin have now managed to completely unify Ukraine. This, is, this, is, this war is marking the beginning of um, a new... In, in truly independent Ukraine, which, which is to maintain its independence and its democracy against um, against Russia and others. So it, it absolutely backfired in that sense. I mean, I think Putin felt that it would uh, just roll over uh, and he could install a kind of a puppet government, um, uh, but it hasn't worked out like that. The president of the Ukraine has been an inspiring figure in many ways, hasn't he? Oh, absolutely inspiring. I mean, he, uh, you know, he um, came out of a long tradition of comedians becoming um, politicians and people thought, well, maybe he was very lightweight and um, so forth. But he's actually demonstrated um, a wonderful empathetic capacity and an ability to unify the country in the face of appalling opposition. I mean, the reality is, and just to go back a bit to your earlier question, the reality is that Ukraine has suffered enormously, both in terms of urban infrastructure and casualties on the front line and, and industrial infrastructure. And its agriculture is now, this is the moment when it ought to be, you know, dispatching grain to all parts of the world, and it's not going to be able to do that. Um, but on the other hand, it's also clear that um, uh, Russian troops have been, have been suffering high casualties and deaths. Um, and uh, Putin and his, um, his senior advisors know that. Uh, and the Russian people who received their sons and daughters back in um, body bags also know that. Um, and it's having a deep impact as well on the Russian economy uh, and on, 
um, Russian public opinion. We shouldn't forget that um, there are 19,000 Russians who opposed the war who are actually in prison still um, because they were arrested at different demonstrations. So Russia has a sort of a unity. It's, um, the war has been blessed by Patriarch Kirill of, um, of Moscow. Um, Pope Francis doesn't really approve of that. Absolutely not. Not only Pope Francis, but Rowan Williams and others as well. The, re the reality is that the Patriarch um, you know, has been blessing the war from the beginning. I mean, Putin built a huge defense cathedral in Moscow, uh, paid for by state funding. And Kirill feels a moral obligation to support Putin in return. So um, Russian Orthodox priests have been blessing tanks and missiles and goodness knows what. In fact, there's a photograph going around showing Ukraine, uh, uh, Russian priests, um, um, in a sense, uh, baptizing um, uh, a missile called Satan, which is a very ironical thing to do. But the reality is the war, the war, this war, like all wars, is generating chaos as a fog of war uh, and destruction. Uh, and it's going to take a God almighty time for the Ukrainian um, people and state to recover. What do you, it's really, is it, not only does Ukraine need to defend its independence and its territory, but it also needs peace, doesn't it? Absolutely. And um, one of the things which I've been doing um, is uh, trying to focus on all the ways in which Ukrainian people can non-violently resist this invasion and occupation. And there have been a number of different peace groups in Europe who have been working with the peace movement in Ukraine to try and make that happen. Um, in the there are president's statements, he's actually been less hawkish than Biden and some of the uh, Western helpers. Yeah, well, Zelensky, Zelensky has just come out and said there is no military into this war. It has to be negotiated. He also mm -hmm. said that in the end, Ukraine wouldn't, would not have to be a member of NATO, could be neutral if there were enough security guarantees. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the contours of a peace agreement are pretty clear. And one, one is that you, Ukraine has to agree to permanent neutrality and not make any more efforts to join NATO. Uh, and, and the West should encourage that. I mean, I think that's something that just, just as a kind of a sine qua non of rebuilding confidence between Russia and the West. The second is I would also go a little bit further and say it would be highly desirable in the short to medium term for Ukraine not to make, uh, not to move towards joining the EU rapidly. I mean, eventually, I think it will be impossible to avoid that. But in the short term, I think it would be prudent and diplomatic not to do that so that um, there could be a bit of a breathing space um, and Russia could um, begin accepting that it had a neighbor on its, on its doorstep that was neutral and not completely committed to the West. Um, Would you um, comment but, but on... Third, thirdly, thirdly, though, it also it's clear to me that um, Russia will never give up the Crimea or, Crimea or the Donbass, Donkats regions. And so it's very important, I think, that um, some provision be made for these to be, to return to the Minsk Agreement, for these to be made semi-autonomous regions within, uh, within Ukraine. Um, what about... Odessa and some of those seaports. I mean, Ukraine actually, it's their territory and they actually need access to the sea. Well, I think, I think, I think Russia has to concede Odessa and they've got to have some link to the Black Sea. I mean, Russia now controls Mariupol, which was the other main um, sea route. Um, and so I think that they ought to be content with that. But, um, you know, I think there needs to be some horse trading. I think Crimea probably should stay with Russia. I think the Donbass region could become part of a semi-autonomous region within the Ukraine. Uh, and um, Russia needs to guarantee you know, free access of grain and everything from the Black Sea ports. Um, and in return, um, you know, Ukraine, I think, needs to 
except that you know it has a very powerful neighbor energy um, um, uh, surplus neighbor um, and figure out ways in which you can kind of develop sort of cordial working relationships in all of this I think that we need to make sure that the organization on security and cooperation in Europe uh, is playing a part in this um, both in terms of monitoring ceasefires and and monitoring peace agreements, um, but also by making sure that, you know, there is a complete withdrawal um, from the border regions and so forth. What do you think about economic sanctions? Well, economic I mean, this is truly an unjust war, and I know people like yourself supported economic sanctions against South Africa yeah. and apartheid. Yeah, I do. I, I, well, I, I support economic sanctions. I think the more targeted they are, the better. Um, if sanctions are simply, you know, blaming, uh, causing suffering for the whole population, then experience shows that they tend to reinforce national unity rather than promote disunity and discord. Um, so insofar as the sanctions against the oligarchs and so forth have been fairly targeted, you know, I'm in favor of that. Insofar as the sanctions are beginning to kind of hurt the Russian people, I think that will give, uh, that will solidify Putin's hold on power and also provide some support for the war. So it's a very delicate balancing act between getting sanctions on those that are responsible for the war and have a key part to play in resolving it, um, and sanctions which um, are aimed at the entire Russian people. Um, and generating discontent, which, which was more likely to lead to unity than disunity. What do you think about New Zealand's role in the conflict, sending military and intelligence aid to Ukraine, dear? Well, I, I would have much preferred it if New Zealand had, had itself been um, neutral on this. I think we could have continued to provide humanitarian assistance through the Red Cross, um, Save the Children Fund, UNICEF, UNHCR and organizations like that. Um, and I think that should have been our role. Um, dispatching intelligence officials to NATO, um, six intelligence officials to NATO, I think, um, was a little unwise because that already then um, underlined the fact that we were making a sort of um, strategic, if not military, commitment to the conflict. And then dispatching our Hercules, um, you know, with military hardware and so forth um, to Ukraine. I think that um, that now has very firmly put us in the, um, the ranks of Western allies. I mean, so uh, we don't have any real autonomy now to play any brokering role or to, you know, work with Macron on the Minsk agreements and um, and other things that might might help sort of some diplomatic initiatives later on. So I, you know, I I, I worry quite a lot about um, you know what this means for New Zealand um, deciding that it too needs to kind of rejoin in a more active way the ANZUS Alliance. I mean, I I'm, I'm nervous about um, Jacinda Ardern's discussions with. Uh, uh, Joe, uh, Joe Biden about um, AUKUS. Uh, I, I think it's important that we maintain some distance from that as well. Um, and I'm hoping that we can kind of you know, quietly sort of work out an independent stance, which states very clearly that we're opposed to Russian aggression, states very clearly that we have a humanitarian commitment to stop the suffering in Ukraine. Um, but which states very clearly that we're interested most of all in multilateral negotiated solutions under the auspices of the United Nations and the OSCE. I think that's a much uh, more legitimate um, role that we can play. How do we make the United Nations more effective uh, when one of the five great powers invades another country? Well, that's one of the big challenges. Uh, Guterres, in a sense, has already picked this up. Um, you know, when the General Assembly voted in large numbers um, to oppose the invasion and the war in Ukraine, um, uh, Russia, Russia knew that it could view that uh, 
uh, resolution with contempt and with impunity because it had the veto power on the Security Council. And indeed, Russia didn't invade Ukraine until it was chairing the Security Council on the 24th of February. I mean, there was almost, it was almost time to suit the invasion. I think um, they took over the chairmanship on the 23rd and they invaded on the 24th, which meant that they did have a veto power over the Security Council doing anything. Um, but the consequence of that has been that Guterres says it's time to reform the veto power on the Security Council. And the P5 shouldn't be able to have a stranglehold um, over that, uh, that veto uh, simply because they are nuclear weapon states. How do you, how do you see the, do you see a, a fairly quick end to the, the war in Ukraine? I mean, to some extent, the Ukrainian defense has been very effective and they seem to be gaining ground at this point. They, they do. There's absolutely no doubt about that. And most of the um, intelligence analyses and things like that show that Ukraine has been able to hold its own in the, um, in the East um, uh, and has had some minor victories in terms of um, uh, retaking places like was Kharkiv and others. Um, um, but, but on the other hand, I think that Russia is a formidable military power. Um, it could declare war and it could um, go for mass conscription. Uh, and it's quite possible that there could be a, a very negative hurting stalemate between Russia and, um, and, and Ukraine. Um, so I think the signals coming out of um, Yeltsin, uh, Zelensky's office, are positive in the sense that um, he's saying we have to look at diplomatic negotiations here. Um, and I hope that the conversations around the ceasefire, which have continued pretty much from the very beginning, can be renewed um, because uh, there won't be any meaningful negotiations until a ceasefire is negotiated and until there's some pullback um, on the part of Russia. Uh, from some of the negotiable territory. Are you hopeful? <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I, you know, my old friend um, uh, um, Ken Bolding used to say that he thought the 21st century was going to be the century of maturity when states would realize that they couldn't achieve their objectives by military means and certainly not by international warfare. So I'm, I'm gobsmacked that um, uh, Russia invaded Ukraine and that we have um, yet again an example of an of a international uh, interstate uh, conflict that we're dealing with. Um, so I was depressed and, um, and very pessimistic about the outcomes at the beginning. Uh, I remain... Um, very depressed at how long it will continue. I, I can't see um, an immediate solution in the next three to six months. Um, but hopefully after that length of time, there will be some sense on Russia's part that they're not going to win militarily. Um, and therefore they should try and negotiate a deal with the gains that they've made. Um, and that's the moment when we all need to really keep pushing the OSCE and the United Nations to step up and play a key role there. Um, I don't think um, uh, Europe, Europe uh, people like President Macron and others would, would love to take on that role, but I think uh, they've been very compromised. And how, do you, yeah, how do you see the future of Europe? And the, uh, well, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's very interesting. Putin managed to do what um, Ukrainian NATO NATO leaders have not been able to. First thing was that he's now given NATO um, renewed justification for its existence. So he's managed to <laughs> he's managed to persuade the world that NATO remains um, a useful alliance um, against possible Russian or any other kind of aggression. Secondly, um, he's managed to turn neutral states like Sweden and Finland uh, into allied states, which um, in a sense is his own worst nightmare because now NATO is expanding, even if the Turkish president uh, is opposed. 
Uh, thirdly, um, he's managed also to unify the European Union, which was always at odds on um, always at odds on whether or not uh, it should uh, develop its own military capacity. And now there's uh, great pressure for it to do so. Um, so that I think is another unfortunate outcome. And finally, um, uh, in the context of China-Russia relationships and so forth, uh, it looks as though it looks as though NATO might do what it's always been planning on doing, which is to provide um, uh, NATO allies outside of the European theater in Asia and elsewhere, which I think will put the heat on Japan and South Korea and Australia and New Zealand uh, to join and expand with NATO. And I think that's very dangerous and very bad. Okay. Um, are you hopeful about the European Union, though? In the Oh, I'm hopeful about all regional organizations. You know, I thought that this indeed would be the year, the, the century of maturity, and that there'd be solid regional organizations that would diminish the powers of nation states in Europe and elsewhere. And that's what I think is the big achievement of the EU. I mean, okay. uh, thanks a lot for coming on board. And uh, let's hope that your hopes turn out better than our fears. Yes, uh, me too. <laughs> thanks a lot. Thank you. Cheers. Bye, Kevin. Okay. All, my, all the best, man. Cheers. Bye. Cheers. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.